tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Russia and China are two nations that appear in the news on a daily basis. Hawaii is home to the Indo-Pacific Command, and so we are directly impacted by any political decisions made, no matter how far away such events may appear. What we do need to understand about the relationship uh, between these two countries, uh, you know, in order to, to grasp global dynamics, the conversation Stephanie Hahn talked to historian Philip Snow about his latest book, and he discusses how history does not repeat but rhymes. Philip Snow is one of the world's leading sinologists, or scholars, of Chinese language and culture. Documenting China's history and international relations in works that demonstrate the range and depth of his research, analysis, and literary skills. Born in 1952, he grew up traveling from an early age with his parents, the novelist C.P. Snow and Pamela Hansford Johnson, and went on to study Chinese at Oxford University. His most recent book from Yale University Press, his magnum opus, took 15 years of research and writing. China and Russia, Four Centuries of Conflict and Concord, offers readers insight into recent global events. So I began to tease out what I found a, a novel and very interesting pattern of a kind of up, up and down trend. That is to say, back in the 17th century, you had the contrast between a very rich and powerful China um, under the Qing dynasty and uh, Russia, which was still pretty poor and backwards in many ways. By the 18th century, you had a process of balance taking place. That is, Russia was getting gradually more powerful. Qing dynasty was very slowly beginning to decline. But the result was an equilibrium, which worked very, very well for about 150 years. From the 1850s onwards, Russia, Tsarist Russia embarked on a policy of expansion. And that really from then on, right up to the late 20th century, you had Russia clearly holding the whip, occupying the driver's seat in the relationship, both under the Tsars and later on under the Soviet regime. The Soviet Russians um, made a point of emphasizing how they were going to champion the Chinese people against Tsarist imperialism and so on. But the fact was that they were still in the driving seat giving the orders, and the Chinese they dealt with were tended not to be very comfortable with that. And so this very, very crudely was the picture up to the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. Since then, we've been back to a period of relative balance, but nonetheless, it's a balance which may now swing the other way till we have a much richer and more powerful China, and Russia is the junior partner. I was really fascinated by that early history and the Russia's willingness to approach the relationship with China quite differently than the other, uh, their European counterparts in terms of gift-giving, all these uh, cultural practices. And how might the willingness to engage in Chinese ideas of protocol affect the dynamic and the relationship with Russia? I, I think for, for a time it, it, it was remarkably successful. I mean, you, you have to remember that the Russians had already been on the scene for 200 years by the mid-19th century. They had time to learn quite a lot about how the Chinese ticked, as it were. And so that enabled them to get away with this huge absorption of Chinese territory in the late 1850s, and for about a generation to operate what I called an avuncular policy, that is, offering to stand up for China to mediate with the other imperial powers. Um, I appreciated that term, avuncular. I was also struck by the intensity of China's understandable desire to be treated as an equal power. It was Deng Xiaoping, Mao's successor, who first was explicit about this, pointing out to Gorbachev during Gorbachev's visit in 1989 that it wasn't so much the ideology that was important. He said that the, he made it clear that the ideology had been quite a lot of hot air, including on the Chinese side. But the Chinese basic grievance had been that the Russians would not treat them as equals. 
Um, how does the Russia and China dynamic currently imitate the historic patterns between these two powers? Has it changed or remained the same? In most people uh, tend not to realize that the present sunny period of the relationship has now gone on for 30 years. That is longer than the three times longer than the Sino-Soviet partnership of the 1950s. And if you look back beyond the very hostile period of the 50s and 60s, further back into the past, you see that there have been quite long periods when the relationship has been very stable. This 150-year period of equilibrium in the um, 18th and early 19th centuries. I think it's a mistake to assume that bitter hostility is the norm or that the current partnership will easily break up, as a lot of Western commentators thought when they first noticed it. Was there a particular character or a moment that stood out to you that you discovered in your research, good or bad, just a, a story? Or Individual. A yes. I think I would be tempted to mention this extraordinary figure who is known as Father Hyacinth Bichurin. He was a Russian monk who came out to head one of the Russian Orthodox missions, which functioned in Beijing in the 18th, 19th centuries. And unlike most of his predecessors, who had hated being in China and spent most of their time squabbling with each other or getting drunk or whatnot, <laughs> he, he developed a fascination with um, Chinese literature and letters. He became a figure really of the same stature as Joseph Needham in the West in the 20th century, in the, in the amount he wrote about China and knew about China. This didn't mean he was very good administering the Russian Orthodox mission in Beijing, which started going to rack and ruin. He got into quite a lot of trouble on his return to St. Petersburg. He was exiled to a monastery for some time. Seemingly, the Russian authorities felt they couldn't entirely do without his scholarship because they had had him sent back there in the late 1820s. And he, he was a great social success in St. Petersburg. It was a little bit raffish, a little bit, not a little bit, very little bit like Rasputin a hundred years later. <laughs> um, but he clearly had great charisma. And he told wonderful, salacious stories about Chinese women, which earned him a, lo a lot of appreciation and excitement in um, the soirees of St. Petersburg. Is there anything that you um, feel that you would like to state about your work, the relevance of the study of history in the United States, for example, the teaching of history is under fire in, in many states? Well, I do. Obviously, I do think history is very important. I don't think that historical events repeat themselves exactly. But as people have occasionally commented, they do quite often rhyme and I think that if it's possible to look back into the past, it does sometimes make the present a bit easier to understand in what can be quite an important way. I think a lot of people look on at the dreadful war which Putin has launched in the Ukraine, and they wonder how ordinary Russians can go along with that. And I think if you turn your attention to the past of Russia, to its long history of being invaded from the West by Swedes, French, Germans, and so forth, then it becomes rather easier to understand why they regard the expansion of NATO into the, their close proximity as a genuine threat, as a menace. Mm -hmm. And I think that you, know, you don't have to agree with what somebody's doing for it to be worth trying to understand why they do what they're doing or thinking, think what they're thinking. So I just give that as an example as to how historical understanding can be an improvement in some ways. Obviously, a lot of people are going to be focused on the present day relationship. And I think that some increased understanding of the dynamics of that would be a help. The present positive sunny period in the relationship has been going on for 30 years now. So far as I can see in the short term, this stability is likely to continue. It's important to remember that this relationship is not a revolutionary alliance like that of the 1950s. It's a deeply conservative one, really based on what we in the West associate with the 
of the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, setting up national sovereignty as something which can't be violated, asserting the rights of national governments to do what they like in their treatment of their own populations, against the increasing consensus in the West that governments are answerable to a broader global tribunal for the way they treat their people. So that, that I think, is a very powerful bond, more powerful ultimately than, um, than that provided by Marxism-Leninism. And it also is a bond which is likely to appeal to large numbers of developing countries, which also don't want to be interfered with or brought before a global tribunal. That, I think, is an important point to bear in mind. Philip Snow is the author of China and Russia, Four Centuries of Conflict and Concord. This is his third book about China and his magnum opus, and comes in at 600 pages with the index. In his excavation of the lives and events of the Chinese and Russian people, he takes great care to demonstrate that history is made not only by nations, but individuals, and that the beauty and brutality of our collective human past imparts important lessons we would be wise to grasp. It behooves us all to read history as we remember the words of another British writer, George Orwell, who wrote in his novel 1984, Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. That was HPR Stephanie Hahn and historian Philip Snow talking about Snow's recent work, China and Russia, Four Centuries of Conflict in Concord. I'm Marco Werman. Next time on The World, we explore a new museum in South Carolina that connects people today to the global history of the slave trade, plus the latest from Russia. Up to now, the assumption has been that the security forces remain loyal to Putin. We may well have to revisit that assumption. Next time on The World, beginning this afternoon at 1. After all the homeschooling of the pandemic, schools are having some trouble getting students back into the classroom. I wouldn't go to school. And then when I try to go to school, it's just like, I felt like I wasn't getting the help that I needed. I'm Kai Rizdal, the companies that make money raising attendance. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at six, following all things considered. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That could be said of a bill that U.S. lawmakers have reintroduced to help Pacific Islander military veterans. HPR reporter Cassie Rodonio joins us in the studio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and so this is an issue you've been reporting on, uh, and you talked to some veterans. I have, and um, right now U.S. lawmakers have reintroduced a bill that would expand health care to veterans living in three Pacific nations the Republic of Palau, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, and the Federated States of Micronesia. Right now, there's no such services for veterans from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. So many Micronesian veterans face a tough decision of staying in the U.S. where there's uh, free health care for them through the VA, but they're in the diaspora, or they go back to their home islands where there's no such services. It's non-existent, and they have to pay thousands of dollars just to travel for care. And I have spoken with three veterans. One is Yapis living on Hawaii Island. His name is Thomas Rafafi, and he said he'll be on medication for the rest of his life. And his plan was to originally go home to Yap, and but that's not the reality. Um, so he's basically stuck here on medication. If he were to go back home, he would have to find a friend to maybe ship that medication over to him and he'll have to wait for UPS to, you know, pick it up. But then also there's the reality that um, he would also, if he were to go home, he'd have to come every three months. And that's the same issue that's going on um, with uh, Robson Henry. He's a Coast Ryan veteran. 
um, served in the U.S. Army for over 20 years, currently lives in Koshrai, but he has to travel every three months to Hawaii to pick up his medication. That's a seven-hour flight one way, and it costs between 1400 to $2,000. Um, and here's what Robson had to, uh, had to say about the challenges they face. Right now, uh, there's nothing set up uh, for veterans on all three Kofa nations. That's to include Palau and uh, RMI. And if you need help or, you know, you wanted to get uh, uh, what you entitled of year for, you have to travel to Hawaii. Not only that, once I'm here, one reason why I'm here this time is I ran out of medication. So they cannot mail this. There's no uh, program set up for this. So you have to physically be on the island, whether here or Guam to get the, your continuation uh, prescriptions. These, pre these prescriptions are uh, prescribed by our doctors for, uh, it should go for years, but they only can give out about 90 days worth. And after that, either you ask your friend here to pick up for you and mail it if you have one. If not, then you're just stuck. Well, that's a heartbreak. Yeah, so this bill in Congress, what it will do is will remove restrictions from the VA. Federal law currently prohibits the VA from providing such services to the three Pacific nations because they're considered foreign countries. So the bill would include establishing a clinic, providing telehealth or contracts with community providers. It would also allow shipment of medications to veterans residing in the Kofa nations, and it would reimburse veterans uh, for traveling to their home countries, to the US, U.S. for essential services. And I think that's the interesting part about the reimbursement because uh, veterans traveling to the U.S. territories, um, uh, to the states, get reimbursed for travel, such as Guam, for example. And, and you know, you just think, gosh, just mail the medication. You know, that just seems crazy. That's just not the reality. And because they don't get reimbursed, there's this really interesting um, unique relationship between the U.S. and the three Pacific nations and, you know, how they came to serve in the military, the Kofa veterans. So the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau share a treaty with the U.S. called the Compacts of Free Association. Uh, the, the agreement is that Micronesians from these three countries can travel to the U.S. visa-free. They normally come for work, education, health care, and other things. And in exchange, the U.S. has strategic rights over the waters, land, and airspace surrounding these islands and the compacts was first signed in 1986 for the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia. Palau's compact was signed about maybe two years later. Um, so that's just like one of the unique interesting relationship about um, these Kofa nations in the U.S. And, and the compact uh, has to be renegotiated and that's it's going on this right year now. actually yeah. yeah it's close to being um, uh, finalized. Um, so this bill comes at a very critical time as the renegotiations, like you said, are are going on. I believe it's close to being finalized right now. And some folks in the community say this proposed legislation by Senator Brian Schatz has a good chance of becoming law. And I spoke with Senator uh, Kalani Kaneko of the Marshall Islands. He said Kofa Nations don't want any type of special treatment just because the negotiations are going on. Um, and to note that this current legislation isn't the first time it's been introduced. It's been introduced in 2019, but it stalled. It also was introduced in 2017, but never gained traction. And here's what Kalani had to say. You know, all these attempts and it, the legislation never went through. I think it's all a matter of what we've all been seeing all this time since our dialogue started is we only matter only when it matters to the people that make decisions. So in this present time, yes, we matter because of the geopolitics. And I've said it before, we shouldn't matter every time we renegotiate. We should matter every single day of this partnership. That's the, uh, the lack. And it, it's an increasing number of islanders, co-fi citizens that are losing faith and trust in the U.S. government is because of things and ways they experience and things and challenges that, that they face in their daily life here in the States and also back at home. Um, secondly, I would like to point out how U.S. always thinks strategically. How are we going to benefit? How U.S. is going to benefit in the long run? If we give uh, veterans care 
in the Kofa nations. Of course, they're gonna they're gonna have to you know use more money, you know, utilize more fundings to extend the care to the Kofa nations. What is their they're obligated to it? I'm still working on getting that number of how much this legislation is going to cost. And I'm still also waiting for the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense to kind of give me um, what I've been asking for for the past week. Um, But the advocates have long raised concerns about this particular issue to COFA veterans. And here's what Josie Howard from Hawaii's We Are Oceania had to say. I do believe the movement today has a lot to do with China. China's influence in the Pacific, and we either use that as an opportunity to make these changes happen, but I think we need to really think strategically. We need to look at, okay, so there is a bill introduced. Do we understand the full story of this bill? How is it going to be implemented? If it's going to be extended to the veterans in the islands, is it going to bring service to the islands and more military presence in the islands? Because in the FSM, I do know that in Koshrae, it's going to be a training site. So there's going to be more military in the FSM than ever. You also talked with Senator Brian Schatz. I did. And I asked him, you know, why has it been so difficult to pass this type of legislation? And he said there was a little bit of resistance from the Department of Veterans Affairs, but he says this bill might have a good chance this time around. There's more um, push from the negotiators. There's more push from the Biden administrations, but it's still a wait and see. This is something that uh, there was a little bit of resistance uh, in the VA, and we think we may be in the right place. I've been working with Secretary McDonough and Ambassador Yoon, the person who is negotiating the Compact of Free Association. And so, uh, you know, nothing is guaranteed, but we have a little bit of momentum on our side. The uh, island nations are pushing for this. The VA seems to be uh, on its way to a good decision. Uh, The Biden administration and our office are all working in the same direction. So we're not there yet, but we're somewhat hopeful that we're going to resolve this on behalf of the COFA veterans. All right, so we'll see what happens. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to Cassie Ordonio. You can uh, read her story uh, at hawaiipublicradio.org. Aloha, this is Dave Lawrence, host of HPR's All Things Considered. We regularly check in with world-renowned musicians like Carlos Santana, Linda Ronstadt, and many others in a series called Off the Road. We get into some classic storytelling and exclusive musical performances, too. Catch Off the Road Friday afternoons during ATC or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For info, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. TikTok is now a driving force in the music industry. They find a song or they know the song already and they love it and they're so passionate about it. And they say, I want to create something to this song. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We'll have a conversation with the man who might be the most influential person in pop music today, TikTok's global head of music. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2... Today, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about what happens when there aren't enough foster families to take in children in need. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning, Christina. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, your headline, very disturbing. So foster kids are sleeping in state offices and hotel rooms? That's right. This used to be something that happened very rarely in the islands. You know, usually when a kid maybe got kicked out of a foster home late at night and they had nowhere else to go, it would happen maybe once every six months, according to the state. Now, in the last year, 14 foster children have found themselves with nowhere else to go. And so they've been sleeping in child welfare offices on various islands and in hotels on the big island. And so we're talking older kids, not younger kids. It's a, a mixture. According to the state, the average age is teenagers, 13 to 17, but at least one child was as young as four. 
goodness. And so, gosh, I mean, we can't just, it seems like we can't just let this happen. The state acknowledges that this is not ideal. You know, I spoke with administrators who said they don't like to do it, but it's the only option. You know, the order of events is sort of, they want to keep the kids in their biological families to the extent that that's possible. If it's not, they try to get them into these, what they call resource care homes, these foster homes. And if that doesn't work out, there are a couple emergency shelter beds on each island, but those are really limited spaces um, and they're competing with other agencies for those spots. And so these office spaces and hotels are really a last resort, but unfortunately they're finding themselves using that last resort more often in the last year. So describe to our listeners what this looks like. I mean, are they sleeping on, you know, sofas? The state said that they're they're sleeping on futons in government offices and then the hotel rooms. I'm not sure which hotels, but there are two child welfare staff members supervising. They don't go to sleep that night. They're working overtime to make sure the kids are safe. And then in the daytime, they either go to school if it's during the school year or, you know, summer programs or somewhere else to keep them occupied until they can find a placement. So how long do they normally stay in these places? It really varies. It can be as short as one night. The typical length of stay is two to three weeks, according to the state. But um, it sounds like at least one kid was doing this, bouncing around for about eight months. They said that person had uh, multiple episodes. It sounds like they were moving around a lot. So it's just a real lack of stability for these kids. And child welfare advocates are saying something's got to change. I can imagine, though, that's just not good for their mental health to be in this kind of temporary situation for who knows how long. Right. One uh, Hawaii Island child welfare attorney told me it really just sends the kids a message that they're not wanted, and that's that's not good for them. They're entitled to the most home-like environment, and she said nothing is less home-like than the Department of Human Services office. Well, the foster family program, what does that look like? So kids are, you know, generally placed in resource care homes. So these are people who sign up with the state and they're vetted and they're supposed to provide a safe home for kids in need. The trouble is some of these kids are very high needs children and they may have behavioral health issues, even substance abuse issues. And sometimes it's too much for the foster parents to handle. And so they have to send the kid back basically to the state and then it's on the state to find a place for them to sleep that night. So is this kind of thing happening a lot on the mainland too? It is and actually much more so on the mainland. States have been grappling with this for years in other states and have really struggled to find solutions honestly. Um, Some states have paid foster parents more adjustments to the law. Uh, In some places, religious groups are stepping up to try to make some transitional housing for these youth. But it's a tough issue. There's a shortage of foster parents everywhere. So if anyone listening is interested in becoming a foster parent, you can find that information on the state's website at rcg.hawaii.gov slash foster. All right. Well, very heartbreaking story to have to report on. But yeah, it's an important need in the community uh, and thank you for your story thank you Catherine. we have been talking with christina jedra you can read her story on the foster family issue at civilbeat.org The Hawaii Conservation Conference opened at the Hawaii Convention Center this morning. It's marking its 30th anniversary. In a nod to the work of many unsung heroes saving species on a daily basis, all this week we were spotlighting seed banks across the state. Did you know Hawaii is home to the only seed bank in the country funded by the Department of Defense? The program operates out of Schofield uh, Barracks Army Base on Oahu's North Shore. With a $50 million a year budget, this program makes an impact. Our story today begins with a cultural connection and two Native voices working out in the field. Uh, Makanani Akiona shares it was hula that led her into this career in conservation. Kumahula Mapuana da Silva brought her dancers out for a volunteer 
program years ago. And it was there that Akiona discovered her deep connection to the Aina. We caught up with her in the lab tending to native ferns. We are spraying these little keiki palapalai, also known as Microlepia stragosa. These palapalai spores were sown back in November 2022, and currently they are about one and a half, two inches tall. They are currently sitting in a mixture of vermiculite and perlite, and in a couple of months we will move them out to our greenhouse where they'll get up potted and eventually be placed back into our, our forest. And they do like it wet. Akiona manages the processing at the Army Seed Lab. She spent hours out in the field with crew members battling the rain, the wind, and the sun deep in the forests of the Wainai Mountain Range. Uh, and they all share the urgency about the work they do. In the past when I was on the field crew, we tried our best to constantly monitor these wild populations of Labordia sertandra, Genioistoma sertandra, um, up at Ka'ala, and these, these fruiting plants aren't always producing fruits. The rats love these fruits, and so our teams are constantly monitoring for reproduction, for flowers. When they do observe flowers, they're setting out rat traps because these rats love these fruits. And they're constantly monitoring for, um, for fruits, going out a couple times a month and harvesting mature fruits, then bringing back those fruits to the seed lab where we can process and store and grow these seeds. You have an area to an orchard. You can actually propagate some things and nurture them so that you keep an eye on them better down here. Our seed orchard, five minutes away from our base yard where we are currently at, is a, is a section where we hold some of our living collection plants of endangered species as well as common native species. One of our goals in creating this seed orchard is that we can plant an abundance of a certain species such as a'ali'i, for example. We planted about 40 individuals of a'ali'i and in the next coming months we were able to collect and harvest many seed from that collection um, versus our, our teams having to go out to the forest and you know, spend many hours of, of scoping, of harvesting, of bringing those seeds back and then processing. So it cuts the time in half. Yeah. So what is it about the work that you do that you love so much? Oh, I love my job. I am living my dream job. To me, being able to come into work and work with these, I consider them kupuna, these ancestors of our land. Um, it's a privilege and an honor to serve to serve our land in this way, to secure these species that many people have no idea about. They're so entirely rare and to be able to nurture and care for these species and in turn, hopefully put these species back into the wild in hopes that they reproduce and create keiki on their own is something that, that I stand by and that our program supports. And the other Native voice you'll hear this morning is Kapua Cavello. She began working here in the 1990s and now manages the Army's Natural Resource Program, which includes about 50 members of the field crews who are out every day. She says just recently they were disheartened to learn that the invasive coconut rhinoceros beetle, CRB, has made its way up to a pristine forest of native lolu palms in the Wainai Mountain Range. The Endangered Species Act exists to keep federal agencies from doing harm to endangered species. And so um, that is basically the reason we have the seed lab. It's an extension of like a, it's our backup collection and our insurance policy in case, you know, something catastrophic happens on the range, a wildfire or something that that burns the last remaining population. And it's incredible work. It's incredible science, right? I mean, we've we've come so far in 30 years of my career from, you know, not knowing how to store these things to being able to really represent them in collections and keep them for decades. So how many seeds do you think you've got here in storage? I think the latest estimate is 30 million. Yeah, we do have a lot of common native species that are part of that collection. So a lot of ohi'a, lehua, and if you've ever seen the seeds of that plant, they're like little dust specks. So it's easy to collect a lot of ohi'a. <laughs> and that, that bolsters the number substantially, but we do have a lot of species. What can you tell us? Because when you first started, though, I'm sure you just had a handful of people working on this project and, and it's grown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we partner with the University of Hawaii that provides our field staff and field crews. And so at, at any point, in, we have 50 people working in our program. And at any point in time, there's, you know, 25 people out in the mountains, primarily in the Waianae Mountains, doing management of native habitats and endangered species out there. So the piece that they do that, you know, connects back to the seed lab is that when they're out in the forest, we track, you know, when plants are potentially going to be 
producing fruit that we need to obtain to build our collections. And so they'll go to those field sites, make a collection, and bring it back to the seed lab where they hand it off to Makanani's team for processing and storage. And so I imagine, though, from year to year, maybe your focus will change depending on, I guess, what's critical. Yeah. 25 years ago, everything was a priority. Now we've got some real successes under our belt as far as building those collections and representing the wild populations that are out there. You know, we, we talk about them as founders, but parents, basically, that, you know, many of the species we were working with had less than 50 individuals remaining in the wild. And so the focus obviously was on those species first to try to sort of stop the bleeding and prevent anything from blinking out. And then as we've checked some of those off, then we've, we've moved down the line to ones with less than 100 or ones with less than 150. So, yeah. Hawaii's uh, situation is definitely dire for our endangered plants and they need to know all the conservation help that they can get. And the Army is a real amazing partner in that. And we were just poking around with some lolu seeds. And you had mentioned that you have some seeds in California. Yeah. So, you know, extreme situations call for extreme measures. Um, so as you're aware, the coconut rhinoceros beetle um, has really expanded its range on Oahu. And unfortunately, in the last three months, um, we made the first observation of uh, coconut rhinoceros beetle damage chew on our wild population of Lolu uh, Prichardia Kaale on Ohiki Lolo Ridge, the southern ridge of Makua Valley. We've been sort of planning and anticipating this day would come, and ironically, we have these partners coming out of the woodwork to assist. Um, the San Diego Zoo has a collection that was established in the 70s before the species was listed endangered and the trees are healthy and happy and so you know we're even thinking about trying to build that living collection there in the garden to represent uh, as another backup opportunity. That species does not store using traditional methods so they're just like little coconuts, right, the lolu, that you can't store that like by drying it down and putting it in the freezer packets. So we've got to come up with unique methods for, for trying to achieve the same end. So with the threat of the CRB, the coconut rhinoceros beetle, you know, they just found it on Kauai, but yeah, your concern is that it's it's really spread so much now throughout Oahu and it's getting to some of the more pristine forest areas. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we we found the first coconut rhinoceros beetle chew on a, a lolu tree up on Ohikilolo. Um, we're not sure that there's a breeding population yet up there, and we're hoping that clim climactically it's not as suitable for them to breed at, at those sites. But, you know, Oahu's a small place, and the CRB do fly, so they're going to get everywhere eventually. Um, we also have Prichardia mardii in the Ko'olaus, which is, you know, a really important species across that habitat, that wet forest habitat. And, and the idea of losing that to coconut rhinoceros beetle is really sad. So we're trying to do everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen. The ultimate reason why we started this seed lab was to, to store collections to be able to supplement and augment wild populations or to recreate populations as reintroductions. And we've done that, you know, through the 25 years of this program's existence, starting in 1997. And we continually plant uh, between 1,500 and 2,000 endangered plants from our greenhouse every year. And there's a different species of focus, you know, or a few species of focus each year, depending on how the numbers, you know, increase and dip. But yeah, we're, we're probably in it for the long haul, helping, helping these plants holding their hand into the future. Because you've worked with this program since 95, I don't know, any particular project that maybe was just, wow, you know, we did it. You know, we saved this thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the sad story is that that would have been the Lolu, the Prichardia Kaale, right? So we controlled goats because they were browsing all the keiki plants. We controlled rats because they were eating all the fruit. If you go into the wild population in Makua, there's hundreds of babies. I mean, it's just burgeoning. It's It, it really has been our success story. So for us to, to find this new coconut rhinoceros beetle damage is really <laughs> depressing find because that we've, we've sort of held that up as our gold star, our gold standard all these years. So um, yeah, so we have, we, we move forward, we get a setback, <laughs> but we're always, you know, adapting and trying to improve. Well, somebody that I know was out golfing at the uh, country club out here and said, oh, yeah, all of the coconut trees at the back, you can see they've just decimated them. 
Yeah, I mean, coconut palms that are synonymous with, you know, the typical Hawaiian tropical scene are going to be no more, right? I mean, you're from Guam, so you would you would know better than me. But yeah, we saw just some coconut palms and other kinds of palms just right around the corner here that had to be cut down to the ground because they were nearly dead already. And then the significance with Makua Valley, because I mean, that was a long time training range. Mm-hmm. And then you had the fires and things have bounced back. You know, there hasn't been active live fire training at Makua for many years now. And so, I mean, what we do has been rebuilding populations and saving native habitats. So in the recent years, there haven't been any real, you know, struggles there or challenges there for our program. I'd say, you know, the support we get from the military is really very positive. I mean, we'd be able to to do a really good job moving moving things forward. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're healing the land is what yeah. you're doing. Yeah, definitely. And I think, like I was saying before, you know, we really are a, a large contributing partner to the larger conservation effort in Hawaii. You know, a staff of 50 people, and there's not a lot of people that, not, not a lot of other programs that have that same staffing level. So for better or for worse, you know, the Army has been able to really support us effectively. And that was just a snapshot of the valuable conservation work happening at Schofield Barracks Army Base. The seed bank sits adjacent to active military training areas, and Phil Cruz recovered native plants and seed here on Oahu and the island of Hawaii. Tomorrow we continue our dive into Seed Week. We talk to the head of the Army's Rare Seed Program and learn more about the work underway to save our native seeds. Hello, this is Sabrina Tavernisi, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look at the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. Next Fresh Air, I talk with award-winning playwright Jeremy O'Harris about the production of the Lorraine Hansberry play The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, currently on Broadway. He also talks with us about his rise to fame with his debut production Slave Play and his goals to diversify theater. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. It was welcome news. A caller reported a monk seal sighting on Oahu's North Shore yesterday, and NOAA staff confirmed it was Loli'i, a Hawaiian monk seal born at Kaimana Beach two years ago. It was a reassuring sign after two monk seals turned up dead recently. A necropsy confirmed one of the pups, Ho'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'
seals. We are, are, are overjoyed when, you know, uh, another one is born, but then to lose them. I don't know if you've got any additional updated information about those two cases. It was upsetting to a lot of people in the public and also with our teams as well, especially speaking about Malama, where we've really been involved with her life from rescue to rehabilitation to release. And it just is really upsetting for us all. And there's a, a lot of work to be done to see what we can do to help protect to the species as a whole, from an individual all the way out to our population. And for the second case for Ho'omalehua, that's still an ongoing investigation. And the autopsy has been conducted. And we really have to just wait to see what the exams say, and that we'll release more information. But at this time, that's where we're at. So Tracy was actually involved with Malama from start to finish. And she has some great stories about that, too. Yeah. So what can you tell us about Malama? Well, it was a member of the local community, the Oahu community, who keeps eyes on seals at Manana Island from a distance. And she was the first one that alerted us that Malama seemed small for her age as a nursing pup. And so we kept tabs on her during the nursing period and were pretty jumped in there right when she weaned to go out and assess her and realized that she was fairly small for a weaned pup. She should have been much larger, but we, we wanted to give her time in the wild to see how she would do. And we kept close tabs on her and then decided really she was not going to survive on her own. So a lot of people involved, a lot of logistics. We were able to rescue her from Manana Island and have her transported to Kaiola Monksville Hospital run by the Marine Mammal Center in Kona. And they did all the hard work of fattening her up and getting her to a good weight for release back into the wild. And a lot more logistics and people were involved in that and then monitoring post-release. And so it was, it was a real big blow, very, very heartbreaking to hear that she was dead because you know, we thought we had a, a great win that we saved this young female pup. Yeah, and, and they do uh, a tremendous job with their fish milkshakes, you know, nursing yes. the uh, the skinny seals, <laughs> you know, to help them have a better chance, you know, because you don't want to see failure to thrive. Right. And it's, you know, the females play a really important role in the population because they are the ones that have the pup. And so not only did we lose these two individual females, we lost their potential offspring in future generations. You know, it's not just the two seals, it's what they could have contributed to the population as a whole. And so, you know, eggs were out and about, you know, we have had those two pups at Kaimana uh, born in recent years. And then that's been good because it's been a real opportunity to educate people mm -hmm. about the do's and don'ts. And, you know, this year for the first time, the multiple agencies got together and they closed Kaimana Beach, the entire beach, for the whole weaning process. You know, we saw what happened last year where the seal attacked a swimmer. So you really need to, you know, be careful out there when, when you're near a, a nursing mom. Yeah, moms can be very territorial, as they should be, as we are with our Keiki, too. And I think that was the beauty of this year for Waikiki was that this mom and pop, Koivi and Pulani, had so much space to breathe, relax, and just be wild. And the public really got to watch from a very good distance and speak with volunteers and other NOAA staff that came down and get a lot of really good information on what they can do to help seals and how to view from afar. You know, I think the last time I was there, there was a, a mother and her young child, and the young child had a little stuffed, you know, baby seal in tow and was really excited to see a real baby seal on the beach. But so, yeah, just it was a great opportunity, I think, for education. You know, people have had critter cams, you know, on them, you know, so they could uh, observe them on the beach. So good teaching moments. Right, right. And, you know, same thing for me, too, when I was down there. A mom and daughter had come down right after school just so that she could get some experience watching marine life. And those are really key core memories for kids that stick with them and help them to be a part of the process in the future to be stewards for our seals. There were stories in the newspaper about, I think there were some of the lion seals that were being affected by an algae bloom. But, you know, what other threats are out there for these endangered species? For our seals in the main Hawaiian Islands, there are a number of threats. And those include human-caused harm, interactions with fishing gear that can cause them to swallow hooks 
or potentially drown in gillnet and exposure to off-leash animals. So for our dogs, if a dog interacts with a seal, they can transmit disease to each other. It's, it's both bad for our pets and for the seal. And it's another really big threat is disease such as toxoplasmosis, which cats are the sole transmitter of it. So that's, those are some of our big threats for Maine Hawaiian Islands. But they do actually differ in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And I'd love for Tracy to share on that a little too. So in the Maine Islands, as Frankie mentioned, it's really more human-related or human-caused threats. In the northwestern, it's a mixed bag. Food limitation seems to be a big threat to survival, particularly for younger seals. We see shark predation at specific areas in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And then we also have entanglement in marine debris. So different from entanglement in active fishing nets, this is the derelict marine debris that is floating around out there in the Pacific. And then we also see male aggression. So adult male monk seals having aggression on adult females and sometimes even younger animals that can cause serious injury or even death. People can always report sightings to NOAA and that's a really helpful tool for our research and population recovery. So if you're out walking on the Kalibi Coast early in the morning and you happen to come across a seal, it might be good just to alert NOAA? Oh, definitely. Alert, alert us and let us know anytime you come across a seal. That was Tracy Mercer and Frankie Kothi with NOAA's Hawaiian Monk Seal Research Program. To report a monk seal sighting, call NOAA's Marine Wildlife Hotline at 888 Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Deb Holland, the U.S. Interior Secretary and the first Native American in the President's Cabinet. She was the keynote speaker at the Hawaii Convention of Conservation Conference today. Got a conservation story to share with us? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.